Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father covers paragraphs 1877 to 1948, the Church's Social Teaching. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So we continue with part three of the Catechism, which is entitled Life in Christ. Um, it deals with morality, but if, if we just step back for a brief second, um, you know, it is about life in Christ, and that life in Christ is living our humanity. So we have been covering... Um, up to this point, the um, dignity of the human person. And with that, all of the components. There are eight components of those. And today we're going to cover the eighth component of it, which is um, our dignity is based on our experience um, of mercy and our ability to avoid sin. It's kind of a twofold thing. The Although sin is not you know, it degrades our dignity, um, our avoidance of it and our victory over it through the mercy of God is part of our dignity. It, I think it's part, partly it's a reminder um, that um, the dignity of the human person doesn't just rest on the natural component of the human person, um, but also the na- the how the natural um, how nature kind of intersects with grace, um, and that that's really the fullness of the human person is our experience of grace, the grace of his mercy. We're going to expand our look at living our humanity in the spirit and in Christ in this new way, um, in the communal dimension of, of what it means to be human. But first, um, let's kind of go in. We start in paragraph 1846. Again, this article is entitled Sin um, and how that kind of fits in to viewing morality and viewing um, what it means to be human from this perspective of dignity. So the, the catechism begins with some introductory points, just kind of reminding us on um, various um, points of, of um, mercy and the intersection of sin uh, based on salvation history and revelation. Um, and then, you know, we really were introduced to this point, um, or not really introduced, but kind of it's reiterated in paragraph 1848. Um, there's a quote from uh, St. John Paul II. He, does, he says, conversion requires convincing of sin. It includes the interior judgment of the conscience, and this being a proof of the action of the spirit of truth in man's inmost being becomes at the same time the start of a new grant of grace and love. So these eight 
roots or foundations of our dignity are they intersect so our um, our dignity of receiving God's mercy and avoiding sin is connected to that foundation of dignity that is we have this ability to judge by our conscience so it's an intersection so these eight foundational truths of our dignity as human persons are the foundations of how to view morality and how to explain morality. So we can't really explain sin unless we also explain conscience. And I would also add we can't really explain sin unless we also explain human actions and how human actions happen and with that passion. So again, you know, we see the intersection of all these foundational truths. 1849, we get a definition of what sin is. Sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It is a failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. So um, we get this fuller understanding of sin. So it, it's an offense against reason, against truth, against right conscience, conscience. Those things which are fundamental to what it means to be human, that we have a reason, that we can understand the truth, and that we have a conscience to make judgment upon our actions. It is also a failure in genuine love for God and neighbor, caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. So, you know, the object of sin is a good. It's just an immoderate good or a per, you know a perverse attachment to a certain good. So sometimes we think that sin is, you know, this intentional desire for something evil. I think this is built up by that imagery in kind of popular culture of the angel on one side and the devil on one side that if I make a cho- choice a sinful choice, it's I'm choosing an evil. I'm intentionally choosing an evil. But we're actually we're we're choosing a perceived good, but it's um, in the wrong, in, in some sort of wrong order or, or immoderate order. So human beings, because we're inclined to the truth, but we're also inclined to the good, we always choose a good. It just not, it may not be um, the proper good at, for you know that ordering. 1850, um, it's sin is a, uh, an offense against God, um, and then very quickly after having defined this. Um, you know, the catechism reminds us of the passion. The catechism then opens up to a fundamental uh, truth, which is that there are different kinds of sin. And I think paragraph 1853, and this is, of course, based on um, the one of the biblical points is Galatians. But throughout Paul's writing, Paul will give lists of different types of sin. So there is a temptation. I don't know what... I mean, there, I'm sure there are crazy people who fall into this um, notion, but, you know, that there's just sin in general, almost like bad karma, you know, like there's good karma and bad karma. And sin is some sort of negativity. Um, but sin is a particular act, and, and, it's, and there are different types of particular acts which are sins. So lest we – and this is – and in fact, it is kind of um, – built into certain early versions of Protestantism. It may even be um, present in current strands of Protestantism. But this idea of 
sin in general as in a state. Now, we, of course, believe in original sin. But original sin is a particular sin of Adam and Eve that we share in, not personally responsible for, but nonetheless share in by our personal descent from Adam and Eve, you know, from sharing, our personal sharing of human nature. So even in that, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a, a particularity even within original sin. So we want to move away from that, I think, that error. Um, the Catechism says, In 1853, the root of sin is in the heart of man, in his free will, and this is according to the teaching of the Lord, you know. So the Lord is refraining, is trying to, you know, he's educate us, really, in the Gospels, that sin isn't so much this state of being, but rather it entails personal acts that well up from the human heart. But let us not see that as, um, again, I hit that point. It's not contradicting original sin, this point. Um, in addition to um, this idea that, you know, there are different categories, dis- different acts, different sinful acts, different types of sins, um, we know that there are um, different levels of gravity of sin, particular mortal versus venial sins, these two types of of Sense. And of course, this comes from the first letter of John, chapter 5, um, 16 through 17, is, is sort of a, a scriptural reference that reflects this tradition. And that, of course, is where John talks about that there are certain sins that are deadly, that are mortal. Um, that's where we get that notion from. So the Catechism in 1855 defines mortal sin. Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God, who is the ultimate end and his beatitude, by preferring an inferior good to him. While venial sin allows charity to subsist, even though it offends and wounds it. So one kills off charity, destroys charity. The other one... Um, wounds charity and by charity we can understand not just that virtue that theological virtue of charity but um, our share in sanctifying grace we say the state of grace sometimes Um, we might understand that as um, you know partly the divine indwelling in that life of grace so the supernatural life of man. Mortal sin necessitates, therefore, a new initiative of God's mercy and a conversion of heart, which is normally accomplished within the sacrament of confession or reconciliation. Um, So what makes a sin mortal? Well, it has to fit three conditions. First of all, it is the object of the act, if you recall, You know, every human act has three parts, an object, which is the type of act, what you're in. The second is the intention, what you're intending to do, or what, you know, what your intention for doing this is. And then the third are the circumstances. So for a sin to be mortal, the object of the act, the type of act, has to be grave matter. Um, Second, which is this, this, this object is committed with first with full knowledge 
So I know that this is evil and deliberate consent, that I intended to do this. Grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments corresponding to the answer of Jesus to the rich young man. The gravity of sins is more or less great. Murder is greater than theft. So now here is a conundrum, um, somewhat of a conundrum that is brought up in the catechism, in this, this version of the catechism. Traditional Catholic moral theology distinguishes what's called parvity of matter. It's called parvity of matter. So some objects are lighter or graver in in their matter, you know. So um, various moral theologians have proposed that, you know, certain types of lies, though still sinful, are less grave than others and might even be to the point that they're not grave matter. The catechism says that grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments. Um, it acknowledges that there are different degrees of gravity, more or less great. But the way that it talks about it, murder is graver than theft, doesn't seem, um, at least in, you know, I think in, 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 interpreta in a certain interpretation, it doesn't seem to mean, so if it's a violation of the Ten Commandments, it appears to be grave matter. Um, as opposed to saying if something violates the Ten Commandments, it may not be grave matter. Um, which puts then the, the weight really upon intention and consent um, when evaluating whether or not I've committed a mortal sin. This is, this is I, I think this is a neglected controversial point in the catechism um, because so much of our catechesis um, and conscience formation has been built around, you know, there are certain lies that aren't grave matter. Or, you know, if you steal something less than the value of a daily wage, then it's not really grave matter. Th these are, but that's the voices, that's the opinion of individual moral theologians. Um, and that that's the issue. If we really want good conscience formation, we really need to go right to the catechism. And it's, it's not, we can't really dismiss some of those lesser, what have been traditionally deemed light matter as opposed to grave matter. Um, so that just gives you something to kind of wrestle with, you know. Um, I don't have a great clear answer on resolving that. Um, I think what it is correcting is there was almost a sense where we were over fixated on evaluating uh, matter. Almost, you know, it's almost like the liberal tendency of, well, which doctrines are more important than the others? So that therefore we might be able to deny certain less important doctrines um, is sort of the, the rationale for creating a hierarchy of doctrine. So in, tr in trying to create a hierarchy of um, graver or lighter matter, it's with the possibility that I can 
get out of lying or you know like lying could be fine in certain cases or stealing could be fine in certain st cases so i think that's why the catechism kind of takes a a harder line on this and doesn't doesn't really incorporate um some of those individual opinions or voices of so of solid moral theologians, you know, not to say that they weren't solid moral theologians, but it's, you know, the the catechism is we should really focus on trying to actually live the com the Ten Commandments as as they're written, you know, rather than trying to parse them too much. To proceed um, on that long tangent, mortal sin um, requires full knowledge and complete consent. The catechism says it presupposes knowledge of the sinful character of the act. So I know that this act is sinful. That's what full knowledge entails um, and that it opposes God's law. It also implies a consent sufficiently deliberate to be a personal choice. So I've really chosen this as an act. However, we shouldn't... Um, Feigned ignorance and hardness of heart do not diminish, but rather increase the voluntary character of a sin. Which means, you know, when we examine our conscience, we need to be really honest. You know, and people might say, oh, I really didn't know that that was wrong. To the, you know, they lie to themselves. Um, or a certain hardness of heart that, you know, um, you know, I, you know, really d did not... I did not really intend this, even though, you know, I probably did. Um, so we need to be honest. Unintentional ignorance, however, can diminish it. So there are certain situations where maybe, because we don't have a well-formed conscience, um, we can't really evaluate whether an act was uh, um, evil or not. Um, and that may be a failure in catechesis. Um, however, we, do, we are reminded that we're responsible for the formation of our conscience. Um, and we can be, re therefore, responsible for our ignorance. Um, also, promptings of feelings and passions can diminish the voluntary and free character of an offense. And certainly um, external pressures or pathological disorders can do that too. So, um, you know, those tend to be the grounds, um, you know, for why maybe it wasn't a mortal sin is, you know, it was, I really was not free in making this. And we again have to be honest when we examine our conscience about this. And then there may be external pressure that may be from other people. It may be from the situation, whatever it might be. Um, you know, fear, you know, bad advice. And then pathological disorders, too. You know, someone that may include addiction um, in certain situations. But the catechism doesn't say that. So, you know, let's not, you know, I mean, the idea that most addictions start with in it you know, a consent, so. But there are real cases of, you know, kind of, and I, that's why I would prefer, rather than to say addiction, um, it's better to say a pathological disorder, you know. 
Mortal sin is a radical possibility, the Catechism says. A radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. So there are people who deny the existence of mortal sin. Some people deny it because they deny that there are intrinsically evil acts. Those people are called proportionalists, and you know there's there there's a certain well, I mean, John Paul II condemned that as heresy in um, Veritatis Splendor. There are some who also deny mortal sin, and this, the catechism is challenging them, because they say that this really is not possible. Just as we say that the humans are inclined to the good, they would say that once you make a choice for Christ, once you opt, make a fundamental option for Christ, you really can't undo that fundamental option. Or if you do, it has to be something huge. You know, like, you know, I renounce my Christian faith. Um, and so in that sense, they understand mortal sin as a, renunci- as a renunciation of Christ. Um, but of course, we know that um, that's not the case. It's, mortal sin is individual acts that are contrary to love of God and neighbor. Um, and we are quite able, in fact, it is quite easy to commit mortal sin. Um, and so people would say it's, you know, mortal sin, and you hear this very often, and it was part of the poor catechesis of a certain age, um, that people really don't commit mortal sin. And that the foundation of that is this this faulty fundamental option theory um, out there. That it's really impossible for me to undo my commitment to Christ. Well, you know, it, it wasn't very difficult for Judas to do it. Thirteen pieces of silver. You know, it's not it's not difficult to do that. You know, and small little. It wasn't difficult for Peter to do it. He just had to say no three times. You know, so. In fact, he only had to say it once. But so I think the I, I the catechism is really hitting this that we really don't. I mean, it, this is really quite often a possibility in our life. Mortal sin. It entails um, a loss of charity, the privation of sanctifying grace. That is of the state of grace. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. If we die without having repented of a mortal sin, we go to hell. Um, Now, venial sins, to lighter matters, um, one commits venial sins in a less serious matter. So, you know, the catechism, again, proposes that there, there may be lighter matter um, that are a violation of the commandments. They don't, uh, and when we go through the, um, the Ten Commandments in themselves, I want us to really pay particular attention to see whether that language of parvity, you know, lighter versus graver, enters into um, from my readings, it's very subtle, if that, you know. So it's not particularly clear, you know. It's not going to be easy for us to say, is this light matter or is this grave matter? Um, I mean, we'll know that it's grave matter. We presume that it's grave matter. But to say, oh, no, this is actually lighter, how are we going to figure that out? So we're going to look at this. Um, 
He does not observe the standard prescribed by moral law or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or without complete consent. Um, so the idea really is um, that you know it, it's a violation of grave matter without full knowledge or without complete consent. So one of those two are most often and I think easily observable. Like that's the easiest way to determine whether it's a venial sin or a mortal sin. Most often the problem is in those those two. If, and and this is sort of me um, providing an, an op- a pastoral opinion, so, you know, but what I would say, I would say that if the question of is this light matter or grave matter arises, before answering that, first really examine whether you had full knowledge and full consent. Because if it is what is has um, customarily, I'm not going to say tradition because you know it may not be part of the tradition, but what has customarily been described as light matter tend to be acts that we do unreflectively, you know. So if I tell a lie, you know what they usually call a white lie, you know, or a jocose lie, which is I'm joking about something. Oftentimes, it's unreflectively. Um, now, other people you know, may have different experiences. Um, but I think it's easy to resolve the question of whether it's grave. It's easier to resolve whether it's grave, whether it's mortal or venial, by first looking at your consent, your freedom, and your knowledge before looking at the matter. Now, some things you can obviously clearly say by the matter are are mortal, you know. Even you know, and those we should, if and those we should be careful of, even um, if full consent is not present. Um, so we continue. Um, Deliberate and unrepented venial sins dispose us little by little to commit mortal sin. However, venial sin does not break the covenant with God. So. Venial sin is not a good thing, you know. It's not, um, it's not something we should tolerate. Which is, I I also think part of the pastoral wisdom of the catechism that rather than breaking down um, the distinction between lighter um, matter and graver matter, what the catechism is asking us to focus on is we really want to root out all sin. Not just we don't want to just live this life avoiding mortal sin. We also want to live this life avoiding and eliminating venial sin where possible, because venial sin builds up and disposes us to mortal sin. Um, and most and I think also you know this the sense of vices arise this sort of habitual development. Um, but again, we're reminded there's no limit to God's mercy. Um, then the catechism, in kind of preparing us for this next section, um, which uh, chapter 2, which is on the human community, it talks about the proliferation of sin. So sin creates a pro- proclivity to sin, the catechism says. 
Um, by repeating the same acts, we grow in, in vice. You know, just as we grow in virtue by good habits, by good actions, repeating good actions, sin builds by repeating itself. Um, and this is why we have to be careful about dismissing um, grave acts by saying that we don't have full consent. Because we've probably, maybe even if they have become habitual, it is because we've allowed ourselves to repeat these actions over and over again through the course of our life. Um, so they grow up, you know, they, they build on themselves. The catechism says this results in perverse inclinations which cloud conscience and corrupt the concrete judgment of good and evil. So as these sins build up and as vices develop, sort of a habit of sin develops, our conscience um, becomes less clear. And it's harder to examine our conscience and to look at the acts individually. First of all, in that sense of judgment, looking back at an act to evaluate what was my consent like. But second of all, um, in, in, preempt, in that sort of preemptive work of conscience, of looking at the action that is proposed and determining whether or not I should do this or not, based on examining the object and my intention and the circumstances surrounding it, um, we become cloudier and cloudier the more that we fall into this cycle of sin and sins pile up on top of each other. Um, but even though sin tends to repro reproduce itself and reinforce itself, it cannot destroy the moral sense at its root. There is still hope even as these things pile up. Um, there are different distinctions of sin. We've talked about this that, you know, Paul, even in his letters, talks about different kinds of sins. But one of the distinctions is this idea of capital sins, which has been kind of a mainstay um, through the late, I would say, the late fathers of the church. So um, John Cassian and Gregory the Great. Um, capital they're called capital because they engender other sins, other vices. Pride, avarice, envy, wrath, lust, gluttony, and sloth, or asadia. Asadia tends to be more of a, a laziness in the spiritual life. Not in the sense of, oh, I don't have time to prayer, pray, but in the sense that I'm not really mindful of spiritual things, of the Lord. You know, this sort of... Um, realization that Christ is present at every moment in my life, um, an attentiveness, we might say, to Christ. Um, we're reminded um, that sin is a personal act. However, we can cooperate with others in sin. And the Catechism um, describes four ways that we cooperate with others. First of all, by participating directly and voluntarily in them. There is a traditional distinction which the Catechism doesn't mention between formal and material cooperation. So formal cooperation tends to be this direct and voluntary participation in the act. 
of someone else, you know, someone else's act. The second is by ordering, advising, praising, or approving them. Um, the third is by not disclosing or not hindering them when we have an obligation to do so. And the fourth is by protecting evildoers. Those four, um, on my based on my knowledge of, so you know certain you know um, kind of traditional Catholic moral theolo theology, we'll talk about again this distinction between formal and material cooperation. What the Catechism is listing there, those four aspects, are what my understanding of kind of the typical moral Catholic moral theology is formal cooperation. Material cooperation would be participating in the act some way in another way than those four. And then finally the catechism, again, kind of building up to this social dimension of the human person, reminds us that sin is social. And just as it can build up in our life, it can build up in society. And there, John Paul II talks about social sins. Um, so a structure of sin based on individual human acts take on sort of a, um, um, you know, sort of a, um, a communal um, sense. Now, how is that resolved? Um, you know, so sin gives rise to social situations and institutions that are contrary to the divine goodness. Structures of sins are the expression and effect of personal sin. Um, they lead their victims to do evil in their turn. In this analogous sense, they constitute a social sin. Um, so it is, you know, um, it's, it's kind of a new development, um, a newer development in moral theology. If you look at the references there, it is to John Paul II is... Um, is sort of is is the um, reference, but this idea that there is um, almost a kind of a communal responsibility for sins, um, and I think we might see that in various societal problems. You know, um, not just you know kind of the increase in certain sins, but even sort of. Um, societal injustice that's kind of built into the system. Um, so then that brings us to part to um, chapter two of part three, which is the human community. You know, the fundamental, um, one of the fundamental truths of the human person is um, that um, we are both, we are individuals within a community. Um, this has been, you know, this was accentuated in the catechism in part one when we talked about faith, um, that faith is both a communal and a individual, that we have to make our own individual act of faith, but yet the faith is handed on to us from the community um, and is lived within the community. When we covered in the, the creed section of part one, um, the creation of the human person, that communal element, is clear, especially in um, the creation of man and woman. Um, we're going, you know, and even in the 
um, sacraments section where we saw the communal nature of the sacraments. Um, this this is a, it's a fundamental truth because that's what we are. You know, man is a communal being. Um, the human person is a communal being. Um, so this living in Christ also has to have a communal dimension. Um, and it is part of our dignity. It's connected to our dignity that we're communal. Um, and this section of the catechism begins with really balancing, because um, we want to get this right, the balance between the human person and society at large or the, co- the community. Um, we know that... Um, the Trinity is, of course, I mean, we're made in the image of likeness of God. And the Trinity is this community of persons, that there are these three persons, but yet they are one. Um, so this is, I mean, that's the fundamental truth of why the human person as a communal being is, is so important. It's because that's what God is like, and we're made in his image and likeness. Um, the human person, therefore, needs to live in society. But society is not for him in an extraneous addition, addition but as a requirement of his nature. Um, so we're not, it's in a sense, forced to live in society. It's really who we are to live in society. I mean, we're born from parents. You know, Our, our existence comes about through community. A definition of society, and and I'm really, one of the good points of this, um, of this part of the catechism, they do a really good job of defining terms. Um, and you could really just do a vocabulary test on, you know, from these sections. Um, or, you know, just to kind of clarify terms. Not just how we use them within the church, but really how we u- um, use them within the larger our, na- our nation, our national situation. So society is a group of persons bound together organically by a principle of unity that goes beyond each one of them. Um, I mean, that really, you know, is very much the understanding of the Trinity, that the Trinity is this um, group of, you know, three persons, individual persons, who are related together, they're related by what they share, which is namely their divine substance, um, their unity. Each community is defined by its purpose and consequently obeys specific rules. But human person, but the human person is and ought to be the principal the subject and the end of all social institutions. So even though societies may have a principle of unity that brings them together, that principle of unity has to include the respect of the individual human person because the community exists for the human person. Um, And that, again, the Trinity, if we want to reflect on the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity does not destroy the uniqueness of the persons, but manifests the uniqueness of the persons. 
or comes about by the uniqueness of the persons. So it, 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 um, this section, really, it, it's worth reading the, the Trinity section hand-to-hand -hand with this because that really, I think, is the way to understand um, how we live in community and society. And it might help us to understand the Trinity, too, in, in an analogous way. You know, There are different types of societies. The basic one is, of course, the family, but then also the state. But there are also um, different voluntary associations or institutions. There's a definition here of what we call socialization. Socialization. Socialization expresses the natural tendency for human beings to associate with one another for the sake of attaining objectives that exceed individual capacity. So within this human, within the human person is built this because we are we come from community and are made for community. Um, it's really natural for us to form groups and institutions for a common, you know, for a common good. Um, you know, we think about. I don't know if you remember. This is probably a horrible tangent to go on, but. There was that movie, Beautiful Mind, about Dr. Nash, you know. Um, but, you know, Dr. Nash, what he got his Nobel Peace Prize for was this economic theory that um, it's always better for individuals to come together for a common pursuit than for individuals to try to do things on their own, which is somewhat contrary to the theory of evolution, at least, you know, proposed both by sociologists and certain biologists, this sort of radical evolution that, or like it's kind of like Friedrich Nietzsche, that you know the, the individual needs to just accentuate himself, and that's how he's going to get the greatest good. But um, Nash's, Dr. Nash's, you know, mathematical and you know um, um, economic. You know, well, it, it applies to all these different things, but really it just points to a fundamental truth in the catechism um, that every human should know that we are built for community and we work better when we are in community. Um, so you can find the catechism even in um, Hollywood, so <laughs> even if they don't realize it. Or even the Nobel Peace Prize, they're just giving people you know, even if they wouldn't give John Paul II a Nobel Peace Prize for ending the Cold War, um, nonetheless, they give people other Nobel Prizes for truths of the catechism. So, you know. Um, then, you know, and, and the reason why there are so many great principles in this, we call this oftentimes the social teaching of the church, this section of the catechism. Or some people will say the social justice teaching of the church. But there's so many principles, basic principles. And that's why there are, so, there are such great definitions and clear definitions in this section of the catechism. Um, but one of the principles, one of the early principles defined is subsidiarity. Subsidiarity. This is a basic, basic principle. And again, these are principles that don't just apply to 
you know, what we believe as Catholics and, you know, our articulation of the faith, but really it's good vocabulary to kind of integrate into our own political life um, as, as citizens. So subsidiarity is defined, um, this principle of subsidiarity is um, according to which a community of a higher order should not interfere in the inter internal life of a community of a lower order depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should, 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 should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activities with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. So um, a simpler way of explaining that princ principle of subsidiarity is that um, the smaller community should be responsible for the things that it can do rather than the larger community being responsible for everything. Um, now there are certain things which the smaller community can't do for the, the common good, which the larger community would necessitate. So when we talk about community, we can talk about family or we can talk about different um, um, levels of of the larger community. So family, city, county, state, um, nation, you know, glo global world. Um, so the catechism will talk about this. You know, really it's how God, you, you know, has worked. Is he, he works according to the principle of subsidiarity. Again, the social teaching of the church is based on our theology, based on our view of the Trinity, based on what God has revealed. God is not willed to reserve all the exercise of power to himself. We saw this in the section of the creed on God the Almighty, that there are, there's primary causality and secondary causality. So God permits angels, humans, um, material beings, um, plants, animals, tectonic plates, whatever it might be, to cooperate with him in the work of creation. Um, so it's based on this idea of primary and secondary causality, that the highest authority, though it may be responsible in some sense, um, nonetheless does not have to do everything. In fact, it lifts up the lower entity by allowing them to cooperate. It, it builds their dignity. Um, the principle of subsidiarity is opposed to all forms of collectivism. Um, it sets limits for state intervention. It aims at harmonizing the relationships between individuals and societies. Um, and it leads towards a true international order, um, a healthy international order. The, uh, we then proceed um, to this. The catechism says a need for conversion in society, that there's a connection between the two. Um, another principle, this principle... Um, that is given is a hierarchy of values, a just hierarchy of values. So um, by respecting uh, the hierarchy of values, 
we subordinate the physical and instinctual dimensions to the interior and spiritual ones. So when we look at um, improving the human person, improving the human society and community, we should never sacrifice the interior or the spiritual to the physical and the instinctual. That it's better for the spiritual growth of society over the material growth of society. And this is kind of elaborated on, it's really sort of a, a new, a, a, another presentation of the means do not justify the ends. And when we look at the need for societal change, it has to first begin with an interior change. So I think this is a um, kind of a crucial component when we talked about sin and mercy and, and societal sins or social sins. Um, the injustice or the in, you know, um, iniquities in society are first addressed by interior, personal interior conversion. And then, of course, we can't dis discount um, the role of grace in that. So then the catechism goes on to participating in social life. The, um, a definition that's given is authority, first of all. Authority means the quality by virtue of which persons or institutions make laws and give orders to men and expect obedience from them. So the catechism is kind of talking about how we all live in this social order. And of course, authority is necessary in the social order. It's necessary to ensure, as far as possible, the common good of society. Now, one of the things which has not been defined, which the catechism will in a little bit in the next um, group of paragraphs, is what this common good means. So we'll just wait a second before what is this common good. But authority exists to uphold it. Um, authority, the authority acquired by the mortal, moral order derives from God. So God is the source of authority. He places those in authority over us. 1901 is, a, is, a, is an interesting little paragraph um, because there's sort of a, a, an, um, a both and that's entailed with it. So it's worth, worth kind of mentioning. If authority belongs to the order established by God, if God has established it, the choice of the political regime and the appointment of rulers are left to the free decision of the citizens. Now that's a quote from Gaudium et Spes, which is, um, it was a development in Christian understanding, is that, um, and, and notice that it's by the free decision of the citizens. It doesn't necessarily talk about how that free decision is exercised, but it's, you know, the church's understanding that whoever is in charge, whatever the source, you know, whoever has the authority in society, it has, if it's legitimately from God, um, it has to be left to the free decision of citizens. So we, we don't want to go too far in saying that the catechism is prescribing 
American democracy or, you know, know, sort of a model, a particular model of democracy on everyone. Um, But nonetheless, a a right-ordered society has to be based on the free decision of citizens. So yet, though, the diversity of political regimes is morally acceptable provided they serve the legitimate good of the communities that adopt them. Regimes whose natures are contrary to the natural law, to the public order, to the fundamental rights of persons cannot achieve the common good of the nation on which they have been imposed. So the catechism is saying whatever form of government, however it's determined that someone has authority, it has to be ultimately based on the free decision of citizens. But there can be different models. Um, Again, the catechism says that authority is not derived from from itself, and it must not behave in a despotic manner, but must act for the common good as a moral force based on freedom and a sense of responsibility. And as such, it's reminded that it serves the common good, and it employs morally licit means to do that, to uphold the common good. It breaks down, authority breaks down completely um, when it falls, when it runs contrary to this. Then the catechism defines for us what common good is. And this is paragraph 1905. Um, The common good um, again, it reminds us of this balance of you know, always preserving the dignity of the individual person, but also that the individual person is born and made for community. So it defines it in paragraph 1905. Co- the common good is the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. That's the common good. We notice that it's not um, merely just material, you know. You know, the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, but the Catechism would also say, you know, this, this whole spiritual dimension, too. So the catechism says that there are three essential elements to the common good. The first is that the common good presupposes respect for the person. That the, this person can exercise natural freedoms indispensable for the development of the human vocation, such as the right to act according to the norm of their conscience, to safeguard privacy, and to rightful freedom also in matters of religion. So the catechism, part of this common good is, you know, yeah, we don't want to see the common good exclusively in materialist ways, both economic um, and even, you know, just in physical life. But also we want to um, look at it in their ability to exercise, say, their conscience, the freedom of religion. Which again, paragraph tw- uh, uh, footnote 27, it's referencing Gaudium et Spes. 
which is another development um, in that in from the Second Vatican Council. Not only is the church more inclined, you know, like is emphasizing that really society needs to arise from the free, um, the free selection of this, the free decision of the citizens, but also that freedom of religion is a fundamental right, and with that, the freedom of conscience. Um, it's not as if the tradition didn't mention those points, though. Um, but the Second Vatican Council makes them far clearer in their, in their articulation. Uh, paragraph 1908, the second essential element of the common good is that it requires the social well-being and development of the group itself. Um, that development should, um, you know, look at even especially, you know, access to the basic fundamental needs of the human person, the human life, food, clothing, health, work, education, and culture, suitable information, the right to establish a family, and so on. So, you know, we think about, you know, the common good as, you know, are there, are there people who are suffering from hunger? Are there people who are homeless? You know, but it also includes we need to provide good health for these people. We need to provide work for people. They're, they need to have access to work. They need to have access to education. They need to have access to culture. Um, they need to have access to suitable information. They need to have access to and the right and the ability to have a family, to establish a family. And then finally, the common good requires peace. And it defines peace not as the absence of war, the absence of violence, but rather peace is the stability and security of a just order. It presupposes that authority should ensure by morally acceptable means the security of society and its members. It is the basis of the right to legitimate personal and collective defense. We also have to keep in mind, um, to kind of close up, a universal common good, that there is this human interdependence um, that, spread, that spreads throughout the world. And that all of us, even if all of us are really citizens of the larger human race and the larger world, and we have to keep in mind that universal common good. But always, always remembering that the common good is always oriented towards the progress of persons. Not the progress of just community. The common good is oriented to the progress of persons. Persons must, individual people, individual persons must never be subordinated to the common good. The order of things common good must be subordinate to the order of persons and not the other way around. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. 
If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless and have a great day.